stand in reverence for the reading of Scripture. What we're going to do is to read this aloud together, all in one voice. So be sure and read in a nice, loud voice with me. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. Are we ready? Okay. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. It's the word of God for the people of God, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, hopefully you picked up a theme in the songs that we just sang. Uh, Today is Pentecost Sunday in the life of the church, the day when we remember the birth of the church and the descent of the Holy Spirit. And it's quite fitting, though you may not know just why yet, Or on Pentecost Sunday, we would read the text that uh, we've just read from Exodus 19 about the giving of the law from God uh, for the people through the prophet Moses. And I can't help but think in reading this text of the Mel Brooks movie, History of the World Part 1, I only make dated cultural references, by the way, where Moses, played by Mel Brooks, comes down from the mountain, he's got three stone tablets, and he says, Behold, O Israel, the fifteen, and he drops one of the tablets, Ten, ten commandments that the Lord your God is giving you today. It's really fun. <laughs> uh, I thought about showing the clip, but I thought there might be slightly heretical at parts, so we'll just stay away from that today. Slightly, Kyle, slightly. Today we're going to make some uh, biblical connections that you've perhaps not uh, seen before, and we're going to watch how in the course of time God unveiled a fuller revelation of himself and the work that God was longing to do in the world. And all of it's going to serve to illuminate for us one of the most critical foundational aspects of journeying down the ancient path, as we've been talking about for the last five months. Now, Pentecost is not a term that was invented by the church in Acts 2. Pentecost is actually the Greek name for a Jewish pilgrimage festival called Shavuot, Shavuot. And it was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals that God instated in Exodus chapter 23, uh, where God said three times a year, the men would appear before me bringing an offering. They had to travel to Jerusalem for these pilgrimage festivals. In Acts 2, when it says that there were people from every nation under heaven there in Jerusalem, it was because of the observance of Shavuot. They were there doing their pilgrimage festival. Now, the first pilgrimage festival that, that we've, you've perhaps heard of before is, is Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Passover was that great story that they would reenact when God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. How God delivered from judgment those who put the blood of a spotless lamb over the door frames of their houses and how God led them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt so quickly that they didn't even have time to throw yeast into their bread, let it rise before they threw it in the oven. Annually, they would reenact and retell the story of Passover through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a pilgrimage festival. 
Now, 50 days after Passover would be the celebration of Pentecost, Shavuot. Pentecost just is the Greek version. It means 50, uh, 50 days. It was also called the Feast of Weeks because it was seven weeks and one day after Passover. In the Bible, in Exodus 23, the Feast of Weeks is originally a celebration of the first fruits. Uh, the, The first harvest that they bring from the ground, they're to offer the Lord as like a Thanksgiving kind of sacrifice. But in practice, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, came to be closely associated with the giving of the Torah, the giving of the law to Moses and the people on Mount Sinai. It was really cool. I love this about the Jewish people. In, in observance of Shavuot, the night before, getting ready to remember the giving of the law, the people, young and old, would study the Torah all night long. And then on Shavuot, they would go to the, the synagogue or to um, the temple, and they would hear a reading of the Ten Commandments. Every year, they acted this out together. And the final pilgrimage festival, at least of our calendar year, the, the mandatory pilgrimage festival, is called Sukkot. Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T-H, which is also known as the Feast of Booths. And there's some really poignant imagery in Sukkot, especially tied with the Gospel of John and water and light that I can't get into today, unfortunately. But one of the most important ways that Jewish people observed Sukkot was for about a week they would live in these little makeshift tents or booths like they lived in when they were wandering in the wilderness after the giving of the law. They slept, and even to this day, Orthodox Jews in particular will sleep in booths on their you know, front porch or in their front lawn. One of the things, again, that I love the most about the Jewish people is the way that they habituated into their weekly and monthly and annual rhythms their own story, the, the story of what God was doing among them. Even Shabbat, Sabbath, every week is a way of reminding them of the story that they're part of. Now, if we were to take these three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, and zoom out just a little bit from the story we've read already in Genesis and Exodus, we could begin to put together a sense of the overall narrative of Scripture to this point. If we were to throw some chapter headings on it, you know, we would begin with creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The earth is created really, really well. Then we get to Genesis 3, a new chapter heading, and it's rebellion. Humanity attempts to usurp God's authority by defining right and wrong for themselves, and things begin to spiral out of control. With Noah, and then beginning with Abraham, we have a new chapter heading that we could put all of the book of Genesis in, simply called Covenant. Covenant is an important theme through the whole Bible. But it was God's way of saying, I am going to deal with the consequences of human rebellion uh, through your actions. I'm going to begin to deal with it myself. We have uh, creation, we have rebellion, we have covenant. As we go into the book of Exodus, we have a new chapter for the people of Israel, and it's slavery, slavery in Egypt. Then we get into our pilgrimage festivals, deliverance with Passover, instruction, the giving of the law at Pentecost, and then we have mission, and, or what turned out to be a period of wandering with Sukkot. Now, one of the really heartbreaking things in Israel's story is at this key moment where God has descended in smoke and fire on the mountain to meet with the people to say, I'm going to give you instructions for how to live as my covenant people uniquely among all the nations of the world in order to bless all of the other nations of the world. 
While Moses is up talking with God, Aaron and the people are at the foot of the mountain fashioning for themselves an idol made out of gold, a calf, and bowing down to worship it, saying, Behold the gods who led us out of slavery in Egypt. You think you've just seen the ten plagues, people. You've just passed through the Red Sea. There's smoke and fire on the mountain. Could you not keep it together for one sec, pal? And the Lord said to them in our text today, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests. That sense of being sent by God into the promised land, being sent to be a kingdom of priests in the world, turns quickly into being a, a people wandering from God for 40 years, just circling their wagons in the wilderness. As the generation that walked through the Red Sea on dry land proved themselves to be incapable of obeying the law that God had given them. And while in looking through all of Israel's history, we see moments of faithfulness. I think of David or Josiah or Hezekiah, Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. Moments of faithfulness. The norm was, was wandering and rebellion. In a sad and sobering reality, is with the people of Israel and with us, you cannot draw a direct line from being adequately informed to living faithfully. They had been given plenty of information, but that wasn't enough to lead to their transformation. And this sounds like, I guess there's good news in this, that sounds like all of us. That us being so many thousands of years removed from smoke and fire on the mountain and seeing Moses come down with the Ten Commandments, we realize that's our story too. Many of us have been in church for, for all of our lives or for many decades, and we find ourselves still uh, like just stumbling forward, or if we're going forward at all. We may be able to think of moments on our highlight reel, but more often than not, we don't live up to our own ideals, and sometimes not even by a long shot. We usually know what to do, but we find ourselves incapable of doing it. My favorite mad scientist that almost none of you will know of, Edwin Friedman, a sociologist, psychologist, rabbi, said, anyone who has ever been part of an imaginatively gridlocked system, relationship system, knows that more learning will not, on its own, automatically change the way people see or think. He said, anyone who's really been around the block knows more learning on its own will not automatically change the way people see or think. Time would demonstrate that Israel, though removed from physical slavery in Egypt, were still like us, like the rest of humanity, in slavery to sin and to self-destructive patterns. God had, had given his law to them, which they were to keep and set reminders on their wrists and on their forehead and on their home, like post-it notes you put up on the bathroom mirror to remind yourself of the stuff that you want to do. They discovered that physical reminders alone, instruction alone, was not enough to help them to choose the good, to manufacture the desire to obey, the capacity to obey, or to execute actual obedience. And so those annual pilgrimage festivals, those movements from Passover to Pentecost to Sukkot became annual reminders and exercises in frustration, reminders of their sin, reminders of their failure to obey and their experience of wandering. Something in the whole system needed to change because they were going through the same cycle again and again and again. Okay, now do you know the scene, those moments in some movies 
where the narrative has been building in one way and you realize like at the key moment in the movie that like there's another angle altogether. You thought you had a sense of where the whole storyline was leading, but then the camera shifts, so to speak, and you realize, oh, something else was up. A great example, 1984's The Karate Kid featuring Ralph Macchio. Where, you know, Ralph Macchio wants to go take on the punks from Cobra Kai, but he didn't have the skills to do it. So where does he go? Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi says, I will teach you karate, but you've got to do everything I say. He says, I'm on board. I'm going to do it. Great. Get to work. And he teaches him manual labor through these very prescriptive uh, behaviors. So everyone knows. What's the first one I'm going to say? Wax on, wax off. That's right. Some of you like my dated cultural references. There's sand the floor, right the circle, left the circle. There's paint the fence, up and down, always in very specific bodily movements. And Ralph Macchio's character is exasperated. He doesn't see the point. This guy's exploiting him and taking advantage of him. He just wants to start learning karate. But then there's the big reveal that all along, through the process of indirection, Mr. Miyagi, in his wisdom, has already been training him in karate. He's getting the muscle memory down through each of the physical movements closer than he realized to taking on the bad guys. Well, in a similar way, we see how in the fullness of time, God had been preparing all of humanity for a big reveal. And with intentionality and care greater than Mr. Miyagi, God had laid the imaginative groundwork through signs and symbols and practices and stories among the people of Israel. And God called his shot for what he was going to do. He said through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God said in order to execute a new thing, he needed a new covenant. A new covenant started with a new Passover, Luke's Gospel. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Uh, John, the apostle, takes pains to demonstrate that Jesus was sacrificed, was crucified at the time of Passover. He was, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Not a sacrifice that it would have to be re-offered weekly and monthly and annually to atone for sin, but one time for all time, Christ was offered, and he offered in himself all that was ever needed on our behalf. Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds the church, Christ our Passover Lamb has been slain. Jesus is the new Passover. With the new Passover comes a new exodus, no longer just from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. Colossians. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. No longer now passing through the waters of the Red Sea, but passing through the waters of baptism, washed and regenerated. A new Passover, a new Exodus. A new Passover makes way for a new Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire resting on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Without doubt, Luke, in recording this story, is deliberately calling to mind some of the imagery of, of, uh, of Sinai, when smoke and fire descended on the mountain. Now a mighty rushing wind has filled the place and a tongue of fire comes to rest on each of them. But what's different here is we don't just have the main man, Moses, up on the mountain by himself. We don't just have Peter up on the mountain by himself. The Spirit descends on everyone, all the people together. From the least to the greatest, they will all know me, fulfilling the words of the prophet Jeremiah. The Spirit was not given to the professional Christians or select few. It was given to all that resolved to follow Jesus. Jesus thought this was going to be such a great arrangement that he told the disciples, it's actually better for me to no longer be physically present with you in order that the Holy Spirit might come. So many of us have such a limited experience of the Holy Spirit that Jesus' words almost feel nonsensical to us. Like, no, you have, it would be so much better if you were physically here with us. But no, he said, it's better that I go away, that the Spirit might come. The Spirit would bring enhanced capacity, power. The Spirit, Spirit would bring insight to remind the disciples of the words of Jesus. Give them specific knowledge. Give them guidance. Go this way, not that way. Give them gifts and a temperament to be able to encourage and arm one another. A new Passover led to a new Exodus. A new Passover leads to a new Pentecost. A new Pentecost leads to a new Sukkot, a new pilgrimage for the people of God. No longer wandering in the wilderness, the vision was they would now be sent and led by the Holy Spirit, going wherever the wind of the Spirit blew. And the purpose of tongues on the day of Pentecost was not to be some kind of cool party trick. Did you know that I'm bilingual? That's not it. The purpose of tongues was to give the people a hint of the work that God was soon to do in the world, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Because they begin to speak in other tongues, people who had gathered from all over the world are now hearing the gospel in their own language, a foreshadowing that God wanted to redeem people of every tribe and tongue and nation and color. It was about their purpose and engaging with the world in a new pilgrimage. God was just the most brilliant storyteller, the most brilliant creator. All of our stories are sub-stories. All of our creation is sub-creative to what he's doing. God took the imagery and the practices of Israel and renewed them, filling them with fresh meaning and purpose in and through Jesus and the descent of the Spirit. And on this day of Pentecost, of all days, I don't want us to miss the centrality and the vision in the heart of Jesus of a new Pentecost in the life of those who'd follow him in pilgrimage. We saw in the story of Israel how, having been saved from slavery in Egypt, information alone was insufficient to lead to transformed hearts and transformed behavior. The problem was not enough information. The problem was not enough power. 
The law was on their wrists and their head and their homes, but it wasn't yet in their hearts. And that was the great transformation of Pentecost. Tragically, most Christians are still trying to operate by strength of personality or will alone. Most Christians, many days myself included, are still trying to live and operate apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, many of us feel probably just like Israel did wandering in the wilderness, circling our wagons, dealing with the same old problems year in and year out. Now, I hope that those of you who've been around for a bit in our community and we've done the ancient path together, I hope that many of you have been challenged or encouraged or inspired these last five months in looking at the journey down the ancient path. But I want to tell you that the journey down the ancient path without a new Pentecost, without the work of the Holy Spirit, is an exercise in futility. It leads to, it's a recipe for burnout and discouragement and chronic frustration it will turn out to be just fresh language for old legalism apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit in our community life together and our individual life as Christians. The problem is we've got no idea what to do with the Holy Spirit. My friend Matt wrote a blog article once and he said, the Holy Spirit is not your weird uncle. <laughs> and even if you don't have a weird uncle, you still got it. Uh, the Holy Spirit has a lot of baggage for many people source of confusion. Maybe you've been in environments where the Holy Spirit has been used in an emotionally coercive way or emotionally manipulative kind of way. Uh, I remember being a child. I was in the third grade, which is funny now that I have a third grader, ending the third grade. And uh, I remember going to camp. I grew up in a Pentecostal denomination. And camp was always, the highlight was chapel services where we had to be in jeans and tucked in shirts. So maybe it was like they wanted to sweat us into like a spiritual experience or something because it was hot in Oklahoma summers in the tabernacle. But we would go to these services and then the big deal was the altar call at the end where everyone would go forward and we'd cry our eyes out and like hope that God would do something in our lives. And I remember being in the third grade. And at the end of this altar call time, they said, if any of you would like to speak in tongues and you don't, come forward and we'll pray for you, and then you'll speak in tongues. I was a zealous kid. I'm still, I'm still a zealous kid. I'm the same person I've always been. And uh, I went forward, and I remember the person who prayed for me, and she said, just start talking. And so I started making some of the sounds that I'd heard other people make when I heard they were praying in tongues. And at a certain point, she said, you got it. I thought, I did? I thought I was just kind of making it up. And from the third grade to my junior year of high school, I never knew. I wondered. I ultimately concluded that I had made it up. And looking back, I thought, you know what? I'm not sure, though it was well-intentioned, I'm not sure it was responsible to walk a, a child through interacting with the Holy Spirit in that, in that way. On the other hand, it was... <laughs> It was at that camp in the third grade where I began to feel for the first time like God might be calling me to some kind of vocational ministry. So you never know. Even in those environments where the Holy Spirit has been treated like the weird uncle, don't throw away that everything that God might have done in you in that environment. There's wisdom in that, if you can hear it. We wanna, the Holy Spirit has baggage for many of us. Holy Spirit's weird or uncertain. Maybe you've been in a church environment where your church picked one member of the Trinity or clearly put in order the ones that you liked. We're pulling for the whole team, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? The, 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 we, have, we have two big problems in many churches. 
Some churches have such a well-ordered and well-defined theology, but they've got no power. It's like an empty fireplace that might look good, but it can't warm you and serve the purpose for which it was built. Or some churches have power and energy out the wazoo, but they've got no order. And so like a wildfire, it is spreading everywhere and destructive and hurting things and hurting people. What we want is a fireplace with a roaring flame in the middle of it. A fireplace to warm and not to harm, or like a fire at the end of a torch that can guide our feet. What is the Spirit meant to do in the life of a church? Well, first of all, I would say it's not primarily an in-here experience, or, or better to say, it's not limited to an in-here experience like when the church gets together. Spirit is about equipping us for living faithfully in the world. The Spirit is meant to be for us a source of power, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. The Spirit is meant to generate unity and love for one another in the church. Jesus said, by your love for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. I think the Spirit is meant to convict us of sin. Jesus said when the Advocate comes, he's going to do just that. He's going to convict of sin. He's going to bring freedom from the shame of sin and the power of sin. Holiness would be evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit, the primary work is to remind us of the stuff that Jesus said. I'm talking Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. The way that we treat our enemies, the way that we deal with oaths, the way that we deal with our relationships and lust and anger and all the ways, all the parts of being human. The Spirit shows up in our temperament of being love, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I think evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit leads to biblical justice like righting wrongs, that God says this is wrong. The Spirit does that kind of work. And the Spirit even gives divine guidance. There were moments in uh, the, the book of Acts where the Spirit told Paul, go this way, don't go that way. And maybe you've had moments like that too where you sensed, though you perhaps couldn't explain adequately, you sensed God telling you, you should do this. Uh, one for me was in the third grade. I felt like the Lord said, I'm calling you to be a comforter. That was one of the first like, word, like, words in my vocabulary of calling that I felt like the Lord gave me. A couple of years ago when uh, Emily and I were in California and with our board we were praying through whether to join this Anglican tribe, um, I, the, the, my bishop, Todd Hunter, was leading us through this simple prayer of come Holy Spirit, manifest your presence. Manifest your presence. It's a way of just saying like, like I need to know that you're actually working by demonstrating it in some way that I can get my head around. And so, like, in trying to make a decision as a church about should we join the Anglican denomination, nobody in Tulsa knows anything about Anglicanism. This is a crazy move. Pray, Lord, come Holy Spirit. Manifest your presence by just telling us what to do. Emily and I are praying earnestly in, in the middle of breakfast with TJ and Reese Johnson. I felt like the Lord said, could have been bad burritos, but I think it was the Lord, said, what would keep you from doing this, John? I will bless this. I feel like the Lord has blessed it. Like graduating from our mother church in a really great and gracious way and transitioning from one denomination to another, I sensed God was leading us. Jesus said, it's better that I go away that this might happen. The Spirit descended on each of them. A new Passover led to a new Pentecost, and a new Pentecost leads to a new kind of pilgrimage, learning to operate in the Spirit. What I want to do in the last couple of minutes today is just guide those who want to be part of it 
through a, in, in a kind of an exercise of just inviting the Holy Spirit to be active in your life. The absolute opposite, like the, the, the last thing on earth I want to do is to feel, you to feel like you're being emotionally manipulated into anything. I don't want that to happen. Run out of the room if you feel like that's happening, okay? I don't want you to feel like you're being coerced into anything. But if, if it's true, I believe it's true what Jesus said, that it's better that he go, that the Spirit might come. Gosh, don't we want the Holy Spirit to be active in our lives? Don't we want power? Gosh, I need it. Parenting's hard. Like, life is really hard. I want power. I want guidance. I need wisdom. All of these things. Yeah, I'll take it. So how do we invite the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our own new Pentecost or renewed Pentecost? Well, first, I think it begins with a posture of surrender and openness. If you do not want the Holy Spirit to be active in your life and you shut that door, I think that the Lord will respect your wishes. If, however, you want the Holy Spirit to be active in your life, and you open the door, and you're attentive to what you sense God doing, I think it's, it delights the Lord to move in our lives, to do the Holy Spirit Bible stuff. It begins with this place of surrender and openness. It may lead you to a place of awareness of sin, or ways in which like, you're, you're diverting from the course you know God's invited you to. And I would just, in a spirit of like, tremendous mercy and grace, confess your sin to God who loves you. First uh, John 1 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us. So in being open and in, in opening the door, God, like if you're aware of sin, just joyfully confess it. Ask God to free you. I think the second part I, I would call is a declaration of desire. A declaration of desire. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes where the Holy Spirit is wanted. So a, a simple prayer to add to your repertoire, your prayer life, would just be simply, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And you might even add to it, manifest your presence. Now, this doesn't have to be hocus-pocus, like spooky kind of thing. Just be like, manifest your presence with like, like, give me a word. Give me a sense of peace or unpeace. Give me a sense of, you know, like uh, direction in life. Uh, my, a friend of mine said, you know, when I pray, I notice that, uh, I'm not circumstances, what's the word? Coincidences happen. When I don't pray, they don't happen. Ask the Lord to manifest his presence by just speaking to you one way or another. The third encouragement I would give is to be patient and also to be persistent. Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, and learn to practice to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do together is just that. In a minute, I'm going to invite those who want to, uh, it's, you can be all, it can be all of you, but uh, those who want to, to stand, and I'm going to guide us just through a time of prayer, and uh, the team's going to come up and lead us in a song. And while they're singing, and, and you have a time of prayer on your own, I'd encourage you to physically posture your body in a way that communicates what you want to be true. Like, this is an open position. Got something? I'll take it. Whatever you got. I want a big one, okay? Be in a posture of openness uh, before the Lord. And just say, come Holy Spirit, manifest your presence. And maybe you have something specific you want to ask for. Or would you, maybe it's healing. Maybe it's something relationally. Maybe you're just like in a dry and weary land where there is no water, and you just need some fresh tears to flow and just water the soil of your heart. I just invite you with, with an open hand just to pray, come Holy Spirit, do the stuff. Be patient, be persistent. And then if you sense God doing anything, just run with it, okay? It's not going to lead you to do anything that's out of line with what Jesus has taught. Just run with it. Be patient, be persistent, and, and come with a little bit of faith. It just takes a mustard seed. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite us to do this together. Lord Jesus, 
we're banking on the stuff that you said. We did not invent the words, it's better that I go away that the Holy Spirit might come. You said that stuff. And so we're just acting in alignment with the stuff that you said, banking on its truth and trustworthiness and your faithfulness. So Lord, in a way that like we're really, truly not trying to force anything or manipulate an emotion, would you just speak to your people? Would you please make us aware of your presence? Could be bad burritos. I promise I'm not just making this up. Or I might be. Somebody needs physical healing. I'm scared to say that out loud. Somebody needs physical healing. I think maybe the Lord wants to heal you. So if that's you, just ask him to. So Lord, whatever you want to do, please just do it. Because you love your people, because you love the world, may there be a renewed Pentecost in our church, in the church of Jesus Christ in, in Tulsa. May there be a renewed Pentecost for the sake of the world that you love.